You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. We're here today with Mickey Maurer, the founder of Mickey's Camp, and an entrepreneur, philanthropist, crossword puzzle expert, and as my East Side friend, Ton Parent, once told me, the person against whom you do not want to play boggle. <laughs> So we're going to get into all of that today, talk about his experiences in Indianapolis, his experiences working for the IEDC and some of the people he's mentored, but we're going to start things off as we always do when we have a co-host with Danielle Shockey, who's the CEO of the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Danielle, nice to see you. Good to see you. Take Great it away. Great to see you, Mickey. Thanks Thank for having us. Thank you very much. What an honor for me. Oh, well, appreciate that. So, um, so I have questions that range from so many different topics. So let's jump in with... One that I think potentially links best to the Girl Scouts, which is um, the book that you wrote, 19 Stars of Indiana, Exceptional Hoosier Women. Um, And so looking at that, that was 2008. My curiosity is, if you were to write a second edition of that book, who are probably the top three women that come to mind that you would most place in a book with that same title? Well, I would tell you that I got a lot of help from people around the state. Many guys, uh, when I asked, who would you want me to write about, nominated their mothers. So um, (laughs) I would uh, start by contacting those people and see how many more mothers would be nominated Mm because some of those people, uh, some of those mothers would definitely be in my book. So that would be a good good place to start. Uh, I uh, obviously had to leave out people. Well, the funny part about it is I was going to do 25 women. 25 is a round number. And I started off and I got weary because uh, it's, a, it's a hard job, particularly you know, trying to do the best you can. And I was churning through some of these uh, stories and interviews and things like that. And somebody reminded me that Indiana is the 19th state in the union. And that if you look on our Indiana flag, there's 19 stars on our flag. And I said, 19, boy, that's a lot better than 25. And that's how we got to 19. And so uh, I have still lists in my files of six others that I thought deemed highly qualified. And to answer your question, I'd go back to my files and find out who those six people were. Now, remember, these were living women because I wanted these 19 stars to be available and be good role models for our children. So those books are in all the schools or most schools and the kids take them out and write reports and contact these people. And many of them have been to school and that's exactly what I, what I wanted. Some of them now have passed away because as you cited, the book is getting older. Um, But uh, I would, Ask guys to nominate their mothers again, and I'd go back to my list and see who I left on the, on so, the cutting room floor. Sure. 
And I think that's a great strategy. I think so many of the shows that um, Robert and I have done together, this living legends idea, right, or leaders and legends, are people who have seen some things. They, you know, they've watched our city de- develop, our state develop. So my curiosity is really, is there a younger leader right now, man or woman, that you think, you know what, this person is doing it right. And I feel that they're going to, they're going to change, put their, their stamp on Indianapolis. Well, I sure interview Allison, who you've interviewed. Mm-hmm. Allison um, Langdon. Uh, younger compared to me anyway. And um, so that would be on my hit list, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly the things that she's done. But remember, when you're younger, you don't have a chance to develop that whole body of work. You can do one or two things that are remarkable, but does that make you a nineteen st- one of the nineteen stars? I don't, I don't know. I'm thinking the title should be "Passing the Torch." Okay. Continue with that flag analysis mm-hmm. analogy. So, who are the younger women that are up and coming? So mm-hmm. maybe, Chelsea, I'll, maybe I'll write that. Chelsea book. Marburger would be one. She started Project Purse out of her garage on the east side that accepts donated purses and handbags uh, from people, and then fills them with. Uh, products and things of necessity for young women and then donates them to mostly inner city high schools throughout uh, Indianapolis. She's also executive director of the Meridian Kessler Neighborhood Association, a rock star East Sider and one of the nicest people you ever meet. Well, I like that um, you've come up with that because if I start to do another book, then I'm going to call you and you can give me her contact information and others as well. But then again, if you would like to do... You're a book don't have at it. It's not on my bucket list yet, but we'll see. Okay. To your point, I have time. Well, you're okay. too young to have a bucket list. All right. But it's a great idea. And I love the passing the torch title. Very, very good. Very good. Uh, before I ask a question, let me also say that uh, the podcast with Mr. Maurer is the first one sponsored by Aaron Shaler. Uh, he's a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. Aaron has extensive experience in residential and commercial financing. If you're looking to finance a home here on Leaders and Legends, we want to highlight not just the legends part. And a lot of people we've talked to, Mark Miles, Allison Melangdon, Bill Benner, David Frick, certainly fit that category. But also people today in their youth or relative youth who are taking Indianapolis to, as Governor Holcomb would say, the next level. And we're very fortunate. Mickey, born and raised in Indianapolis. I know you went to North Central High School. Yes, I was born and raised in Indianapolis, and I didn't leave till it was time to go to college. What made you choose the University of Colorado? Well, I was the first um, graduate of college in my family, so we weren't oriented too much toward college. And I noticed a lot of my fellow students were picking out of school. And I was in the library and I saw a, uh, a brochure for University of Colorado. There was a guy on the front skiing. And I thought, boy, that looks like a lot of fun. That's how I chose University of Colorado. Not so smart, but that's how it was. That's You want you the truth fun? today, right? Yeah, I, I did. I had, a, I had a great time and I spent four years there and I uh, did learn to ski and I and I and I did like it, so it went went just fine for me. And then you get a little older and more mature, and it was time to think about what I want to do for a living. And I knew it wasn't staying in Colorado and skiing all day, so I went back to Indiana University and went to law school there. Did you enjoy IU? Everybody we've talked to who, who's gone to IU 
would go back there tomorrow. They had such a good time. Well, they didn't have the advantage of co uh, comparing it to the University of Colorado like I did. So, <laughs> so uh, I did like my years at IU, but it was more oriented toward learning, and Colorado was more oriented toward fun. Which one I liked better? Easily, Colorado. You had more fun in Colorado than you did in Bloomington? By far. <laughs> but you come back here, and you come back to Indianapolis. What are some of your thoughts? I mean, one of the themes of Leaders and Legends is to have people talk about the things, how much our city has changed, and why they think that change occurred. Give well, us physically, some thoughts. Physically, uh, I know when I brought my wife back to Indiana from New York, she kept looking up and said, where, where are the, the buildings? What year would this be? Um, we got married in 68. You didn't have, you, all you had was a city county building. They had hardly anything there. And Castleton was just the post office. And um, so there, there wasn't much there, particularly from somebody from New York. I don't think she unpacked her bags the first two years we were married. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like uh, Green Acres? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. So physically, there have been lots of changes. Um, and culturally, um, you can do about anything you want now. You don't have to go back to New York if you're my wife, and and she doesn't. You couldn't pry her out of Indiana now. Um, so th there's a lot of opportunities to do all kinds of things and, and enjoy this this beautiful place we call Indiana. Um, just for example, the Carmel Performing Arts Center is equal to none. I just think it's terrific. We were just there not too long ago, and... Um, Saw some wonderful performances. That's right in our backyard. W what a wonderful opportunity to do that. And uh, I didn't have to take the subway or the bus or a taxi cab to get there. It's pretty cool. As you look at the changes, one of the themes that, that's, that's come through is the fact that politics, while probably never absent, was certainly never in the forefront, starting, say, in 1967, when Richard Luger's elected mayor for the first time, that people came together both to make things happen. And then once uh, events got secured, that an unparalleled volunteer base helped drive these. We heard it from David Frick. We heard it from Mark Miles. We heard it from Allison Melangdon, Greg Ballard. So I'm assuming that it's true. Well, but look, we've been blessed with wonderful mayors. I mean, brilliant people. I mean, uh, Luger... They say when Luger walks into a room, he's automatically the smartest person in the room. Um, but he, either way, he's a remarkable mayor. And remember Hudnut? I think he was, uh, I'm not sure, I think he was a Rhodes Scholar, or definitely Phi Beta Kappa. Um, he, he was a, a brilliant guy. So we've been blessed with some pretty darn good mayors. Steve Goldsmith, very bright guy. And so I think and a Luger lot of, was a Rhodes Scholar. Mayor Luger Rhodes definitely Rhodes. was a Rhodes Scholar. Luger, incidentally, was in my men's book of 19 stars, which came shortly after the women's book because there was an outcry uh, about <laughs> the patriarchy. Hey, what, what happened here? <laughs> Women are taking over. And I said, well, we're going to we'll do a book. So uh, he was in, in that book. But th when you think back about the leadership we've had in the city, then it's no wonder that we've done wonderful things here. Those, those are bright, bright people who are our mayors in those days. So kind of piggybacking on the Colorado idea, and I, 
I can't believe you thought he would say IU, Robert. Like, I can't believe you thought that he wasn't going to say Colorado. Well, his name is on a building. I, I know, but looking back, Colorado is gorgeous. And, the out, and looking at your passion for outdoor adventure makes me think that Colorado had to be amazing for you. It was amazing and a great time. But, you know, when I first walked into that law school, as I got, I got admitted, I got admitted by the seat of my pants because I was um, not a great student at Colorado. I, I got that part straightened out later. But uh, when I walked in that law school, I had goosebumps on my on my arms. I walked into the what they call the moot courtroom where they have a judge and jury and all that stuff. I said, oh, my God, I belong here. So um, it was uh, a great experience. So my question was going to be kind of to the future, right? Workforce, um, attracting talent, um, making people who may go to Colorado want to come home again. What do you think is going to be, what do you think we have to do? As well, a I think it's a natural phenomena. Uh, phenomenon. I think it's um, kids, when they grow up, they want to get away. Uh, anecdotally, I had three kids, they all left, but they all came back. I would say they drifted back. They didn't come back en masse. They just, eventually they're all back here. Why? Because this is a great place to grow up and to raise children. Um, plus, it's just getting better and better about because of some of the things we talked about. So do we have to make an effort to get people back? I suppose so. And my friend Bill Osterley is working very hard at trying to do that. And I don't, I haven't measured, seen the measurement of his success or not. But I say as a natural flow of things, when kids try to get out, stretch their wings, uh, if they have any memory cells at all, they'll say, well, Indiana wasn't so bad. And many of them will come back. One of the things that Greg Ballard did as mayor was to try to construct exactly what you said, an enticement. He was influenced heavily by his, by his kids. He had a young son and a young daughter, both of whom were either at IU or just graduated from IU when, when he was mayor. And he set about creating a city for young people to, to matriculate back to and then build their business, build their career, raise their family. Is that one of the biggest changes you have seen in Indianapolis in the last 10 to 20 years is just the, the amount of activity, the number of young people who want to call Indianapolis home, that Indianapolis is hip in a way that maybe it wasn't 30, 40 years ago? Well, let's take the back end of that question. It really wasn't 30 or 40 years ago. So I'll agree with that. Uh, and, and then on the front half of that, yeah, I'd say there's a lot of, of improvement going on. And uh, a lot of people are proud to call Indianapolis home. There are a lot of people that people ask me where I'm from and I say Indianapolis, but lately I've been saying I'm from Carmel because they're from a microcosm. Carmel is uh, a big change into what it used to be. And uh, so people who are from Carmel now are proud to say, oh yeah, I, I live in Carmel, not necessarily Indianapolis, um, but we need to look at it as one big metropolitan area. And that's how we in economic development look at things, and that's how you should look at it. So all in all, Carmel, Indianapolis, everything uh, shakes down as a great place to live and work. Do you agree with former Mayor Hudnut's dictum that you can't be a suburb of nothing? <laughs> yes, I do. And uh, what he's saying is that the, the, the core is most that's the heart and most important that should be preserved enhanced i guess i do agree with that 
and that's come up a little bit. The show doesn't necessarily delve into politics too much, but to your point about economic development, the use of sports and tourism to help not only grow Indianapolis as a city, grow its tax base, grow its employment opportunities, but also to enhance its reputation around the world has been discussed by several guests, some of whom I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Are, have, do you think that strategy has worked? And do you also think that it has been worth the cost? Well, that's two questions. And um, I, I would say that the strategy has worked. Um, but has, is it worth the cost? I don't know. We What have we made uh, billionaires out of people because of the largesse that we bestowed upon um, some of these sports owners? And uh, is it worth it? Um, I don't know. I, uh, there's a f- couple of guys that are pretty smart that know how to analyze that stuff. I, I couldn't hazard a guess. It seems like an awful lot of money to pay, but and other cities have chosen different avenues and chosen not to lavish millions of dollars on on teams like the Pacers and the Colts, and um, they may be doing just fine. So I really don't know the answer to that question. So one of the one of the parts of Girl Scouts that I'm particularly proud of is our inclusivity and and welcoming all girls. Um, and so I read something that you wrote, and I'm not sure what the, how to cite it, but basically you talk about diversity in, in Indianapolis and your mother wanting to join Meridian Hills Country Club. And one No, of the, she didn't want to join. Okay. Uh, correct me, please. But Yeah. So it, it was a situation where my mother belonged to a country club called Broadmoor because that was the only country club that would let her belong. So she belonged there. Let's, and, let's make sure we're clear. Forgive me. Why? May I ask? Because why? she was Jewish okay. or is Jewish. She's still alive. She's a young 97 right now. Um, but um, so that's where she belonged. And the tradition in Indianapolis at the time, we're talking in the 50s, um, was that if you had a tournament at your club, then the other clubs would extend to you an invitation to play there while a tournament was um, really monopolizing the course at your home course. So her girlfriends, her neighbors, uh, were all going to play to play golf one day, and they were playing at um, a country club called Meridian Hills. A very restrictive membership at the time. I don't need to use the word very because everybody had the same restrictions. Um, and uh, they would, uh, the Meridian Hills folks wouldn't let her play. Couldn't even play. So she was very upset about that. Who likes to get rejected for any reason? And so it affected me, and I um, had an opportunity to correct that situation when I gathered more strength and power. We mentioned you in your brief kind of the flyover of your resume. I mentioned your role as a philanthropist. Talk about Mickey's camp, please. You established it about 17, 18 years ago, right after, I think it was 2001. This will be what, our 19th year. What was what was the impetus for it? Some of the uh, groups and people you've helped and why people should care that you've done such a thing. I uh, was invited with my wife over to somebody's house one night. And um, you probably had the same experience. And after dinner, the men went in one room and the women went somewhere else. And we went into this guy's den and he has a pool table. We were playing pool and for money, not, not a lot of money. Um, but it uh, whetted my competitive instinct and I was terrible. 
so it bothered me. I went home that night, and I, and I'm, I was in my, I guess I'm in my late 40s or 50s, 50-something. And um, I listed the things that, at my age, adult skills that maybe I should be better at. I remember writing them down. I remember my wife walking in and adding a few things to the list. <laughs> I, I won't go into detail there. So I had to list, and I, and I listed pool, of course, and I listed photography, and I listed all kinds of stuff, fishing. So then I um, wanted to learn from the very best. So I researched the pros and experts around the country who were the very best at teaching these things, like the Black Widow and pool. I don't know if you've ever seen her on TV and um, all kinds of things like that. State Scrabble champion all kinds of people all over the country, top chef. And I went to the Flat Rock YMCA in Shelbyville and I said, I'd like to lease your facility for a few days, three or four days after your camp is over. They said, sure. It was found income for them. And then I contacted all these pros and I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come to town. I want you to to uh, donate your services and I want you to teach me how to do these things and I will make it a fundraiser and everybody will come and we'll learn from you and everybody have a great time and then we'll raise some money for charity. That's what I said. And um, then I had to start figuring out how to do that. We prepared a brochure. I was totally obnoxious about it. I had these stack of brochures. I'd go into a restaurant and hand them out. My wife refused to have dinner with me anymore. And um, I started getting names, putting the arms of my friends. And I said, I needed a hundred to cover the fixed costs and then have some money for charities. I got to 99, believe it or not. And I was pleased. I get to camp and one guy says, I'm new in town. I heard about this camp and I insist upon coming. And um, that guy turned out much, much later to be my next door neighbor. His name is Ursal Ozdemir, and he was my 100th camper, and he's been every single year. This will be 19 years, and he'll, he's been there 18 years. And a lot of folks said, okay, I did you a favor, Mickey. I did it. I didn't like it. I'm not coming back. But more than enough said, boy, that was great. I'm coming. I'm bringing friends. And from then on, uh, the men's camp has just been full. It was full to the brim last year. It'll be full again this year. And... Uh, so we raised a lot of money. And then later, uh, when I got to a bigger camp where I could accommodate, um, uh, not co-ed, but a women and men's camp and, and uh, co-ed days and meals, uh, I had enough beds and stuff to do it um, at uh, Bradford Woods, we started a women's camp. And that's probably 10 or 11 years ago. So now we have both camps going. And um, and the middle day, Wednesday, we have a joint lunch and joint classes and uh, it's worked out very, very Still well. Still enjoy it? I, I do. It's, it's, a, it's a working, it's a project that you work. It's like a business, okay? So the business makes a quarter of a million dollars a year, but our shareholders are charities. So we work hard, uh, just a couple of us, and um, we put it all together. We make a quarter of a million dollars, and we happily hand it out every year. Some of the organizations you've supported are? There's been over a hundred. I mean, anybody can be one of our main charities if they're recommended by a camper, if they're a 501c3, if they have local governance, 
if they promise to spend the money we give them in our community and if they send five campers to camp, five campers from their staff, from their board of directors, from their spouses of, of a staff or board, um, people associated with the charity. That's all you got to do. And so we have a list and um, I mean, we have no trouble figuring out who wants to be a charity. Everybody wants to be the charity. And um, we have a list and then everybody gets the chance. One of the organizations that received some support through this is the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Absolutely. I think it's been right around probably three years ago. We were the uh, the women's charity of choice for the Mickey's Camp. We're thankful, very thankful. We've continued to support. We've continued to send people because they had that great of an experience. Oh, please, please do that. Absolutely. And then we'll make you a charity again one year. All right. I'll hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> In 2004, a fellow named Mitch Daniels was elected governor of the state of Indiana. Um, you guys went to the same high school. Not years, at the same time. A few years apart. Yes. Governor, if you're listening. A few years apart. <laughs> and you went to go work for him. As Secretary of Commerce, if I may put it that way, what was that like, and what do you think the impact of the Daniels governorship has made on Indiana? Is it a watershed event in our history, in your mind? Yes, I th- I think um, Mitch Daniels probably did as good a job as one could do, and it was at a time when we had a lot to do. Uh, economic development took great strides forward um, because Mitch uh, and his team made the regulations easy for us to sell companies to come to state. Taxes were uh, relatively low compared to our neighbors, and our credit rating was very high. So uh, all we had to do was go to work, uh, which we did, and we brought a lot of businesses to the state of Indiana. And so that, that went very, very well. I was comms director for the Indiana Republican Party in 2006 and 2007 before the Daniels administration really kind of moves in a bad way politically, especially in 2006. We had a rough year at the ballot box. But about that same time, you had things like the lease of the, the toll road up north and the securing of the Honda plant in what were your opinions of that? And if you were involved in either one of those, if you could, Sarah, I was peripherally involved in the, in the toll road. So not really, uh, the Honda, that was strictly economic development. That was my bailiwick and the Toyota plant the same year. We were the only state that has two Toyota plants. Um, we worked very hard on, on both of those. We had some support from the legislature on Honda and some of the other players, but Toyota, we kind of did ourselves. And, um, those were just two of tons of deals. Nestle, if you go up to Anderson, Nestle, you see yeah. Nestle. We did the Nestle deal that same year. And we did the Viola Water Company headquarters, uh, national headquarters. Uh, we did some very big deals there. We did some Rolls-Royce work. And then lots and lots of smaller deals, which is really the backbone of Indiana small business. Um, it was very, very active. I didn't bring any stats with me. Um, but uh, when I used to cite the work we did, the, the, uh, Democrats got upset because it kind of inferred that, uh, the prior guy, uh, was a failure. And I didn't mean to make that inference. 
And so Governor Kern and Governor O'Bannon, you mean? Yeah, and his and his guy. So I, I, uh, I don't do that anymore. But we we were very proud of what the work we did. Would it be fair to say, without being too direct, that you crossed the aisle to work for a Republican governor? Um, I like to first find a moderate Republican to vote for. So, uh, no, um, like a Luger, sure. a big fan of Lugers, for example, uh, I would vote for a moderate Republican first. Uh, have you seen one of those guys in the last few years? Maybe I'm one. Well, but I haven't seen many. So Greg Ballard, Greg Ballard. Um, I probably voted for, no, I couldn't because I don't live, live in the city. Carmel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I did vote for our mayor, uh, Carmel Mayor. He's a Republican, and he's not uh, way out there on the right. So, yeah, he would qualify for me. Um, but if I don't find a moderate Republican, then I'm going to look elsewhere. And I'll, I'll vote for a Democrat, too. So um, that's that's what that's where I am. One more question for about Mitch Daniels before Daniel takes over, and that is he seems to be to possess a quality of leadership combined with intelligence and unparalleled, I would say, communication skills. How often do you, or correct me if you don't think I'm right, but what he's doing at Purdue, which is where my son's getting ready to go because he's got into the aviation school there. It just seems that there are certain people who just have it. And we can define it. It's somewhat nebulous. Governor Daniels seems to have it. Are there other people you've encountered in your business career who you'd like to just mention for a few seconds who just singularly impressed you? Well, we were talking about politics, and um, Luger is a very impressive guy, so I would say uh, that's that's pretty good. Uh, I've had a privilege to work for, uh, not for, but with a lot of good business people, and I've had a partner for... Uh, more than 50 years. His name is Bob Schloss. And um, I've enjoyed working with him. He's he's a bright guy. Um, I now have a, c- a current partner at the IBJ named Nate Feltman, who was my successor as Secretary of Commerce. He's got a law degree. Um, he's got a law degree from a school up in Indianapolis, not quite as good as the one down in Bloomington, but still a pretty good school. <laughs> and um, he speaks fluent Russian and he's got a great track record and marvelous uh, hair. Yeah. And I say, um, if he isn't it, he will be it. You know, it's hard to, to um, describe, but don't think for a minute that Mitch Daniels is automatically it. He's a hardworking guy. And if you want to be, as you call it, it, then you got to work hard and, and people shouldn't lose sight of that. He's not automatic. Uh, he puts the time and energy in to get it right. Uh, it was a pleasure to work for him for the most part. Uh, he may not return the compliment. I must have driven him crazy. But uh, <laughs> What did you do that drove him crazy? Can't well, let that hang. <laughs> well, uh, I think I was the oldest person in his cabinet. And the one that well, he, tell, he told me to run the IEDC as a business. And so I would keep that in mind versus some of the dictates that he Delivered. For example, he put a moratorium on salaries right. for a year. You were in that era, probably probably remember that, or maybe all of us did. 
So everybody in the cabinet dutifully uh, put a lid on any raises. And I, on the other hand, gave my good people raises. And um, there was a guy, a budget guy named Chuck Shalio. He was a very bright guy, Yale graduate. Yes. Nice guy, too. And he called, and he was less than happy about the fact that I disregarded the orders of the boss, gave my people a raise. And I said, well, Chuck, you'll also note that he told me to run my IEDC like a business. And you can't run a business if you don't give your best people a raise. They'll leave. And that's probably that's a lot of the reason why government employees do leave. They don't get paid well. So I gave them all all the ones that I sh- that should have deserved raises. I gave them raises, and check um, said, okay. He checked with the governor. Okay, but that's one of about 20 different things, and we could have this entire afternoon of things where I had to, had to do things the way I thought they should be done, and I don't think the governor was always pleased with the way I ran. You might have to, you might have to interview him oh, next. Oh, we'd love to have him on Leaders and Legends for sure, absolutely. But one of the things that you hear from from whether it's elected officials or top CEOs, a lot of their pride, and that's a, that's an apt term comes from the people who worked for them and have gone on to do amazing things. Uh, Whether it's Nate Feltman, who's marvelous and bright and successful and very engaging, very humble, terrific guy, Ryan Vaughn, who's been on the podcast, Michael, who worked for Greg Ballard, Michael Huber, who, Uh, worked for Greg Ballard. We're hoping to get some folks who worked for Peterson and by and all that. It's really one of the legacies, these top, these top executives and elected officials leave. Is that something that's been important to you as a top executive and philanthropist here in, in well, when I was at the IEDC and we, we started that place. We were the first people to put that together. And I thought, what a legacy I'm going to, leave here and we hired people we trained people um the commerce was in terrible terrible situation and um when we were we were out we left it in humming shape great shape and i thought well there's a legacy that'll last forever i think i dropped by two years later and i didn't recognize a soul um so if you think that you're making a big imprint maybe you're really not um not that the place was not doing well. It was. It was doing pretty well. Um, but I think you have to have an outsized ego to think you're going to leave a legacy when, in fact, you probably won't. So I, um, I mentioned off air um, that a colleague of ours who works at the Girl Scouts in a chief um, position used to work for you, Mickey. And she tells a story that she was potentially in the organization at the time. And it doesn't matter which one of the organizations you were part of, that she was just a nobody. I mean, she was a employee. But what struck her most profound about you and talking about legacies is she felt like at any time, and she did this and you did this, that she could call and say, can we have lunch or can I talk to you? And you always said yes, that you always cared about hearing from a variety of people in your world. And so I feel like that's, you know, a legacy. But I wonder if now looking back, is there something that you've always felt was fundamentally core to who you were? Was it the way well, you treat people? What is that? One time in my early career, I was working for somebody and he asked me to call um, a, a group, the Jacksons, out of southern Indianapolis. And um, why I remember that is because it, I was very upset at the time because they wouldn't return my call. 
I think they were real estate developers, or grocery store owners, or who knows what. And my boss, his name was Gene Glick, kept asking me, where's that report? Where's that report? And I couldn't give him the report because I couldn't get the right people to call me back. And I said to myself, well, I'm never going to behave in that manner. I'll call everybody back, even if I know they want to sell me life insurance. I'll call everybody back. And so I have. I've called everybody back in my entire career as quickly as I could. Um, I've kept my word. Um, and I... Um, I um, am proud of that. But we have changed a few things. One is, remember you mentioned the lady wanted to have lunch with me? I know I know her and I like her. Um, we don't do lunch anymore unless you're a friend. So I work very hard and I return every email and every single communication and I'm available to everybody no matter what they want. But lunch, you gotta be a friend to have lunch. And so my assistant will say, do you know that person? Because if you don't, you know, somebody will call up and say, um, I need to have lunch with Michael. Well, I'm not Michael, I'm Mickey. So that's a dead giveaway. But um, we check that out. And in the middle of the day, I'm having lunch with somebody I like and somebody I know. So I can relax a little bit. So that's an exception. I didn't always do that. But... Um, that's one thing I give myself a chance to relax at lunch. That's awesome. Um, so we've I've read somewhere, and maybe it's wrong. Do you have a deadline for your last article? Like, do you have a, a goal in mind for when you are going to put write your last idea? Yeah, I, in my column that just came out this week, just came out, um, I say at the end that after, and I don't remember now, 25 to 30 years of writing columns on a regular basis, uh, I'm going to stop at the end of this year. Okay. So I didn't so, want to so, I know, uh, stop writing a regular column. Maybe somebody might ask me to write a column in the IBJ from time to time. I don't know. Uh, or maybe I'll feel inclined to want to do that. But on a regular deadline basis, um, I'm done at the end of this year. Can you imagine hitting a, facing a deadline every two weeks for that many years? It has to feel freeing to think about not having a deadline every it two sure weeks. It sure does. Yeah. So my question was going to be, is there anything that's – is there something on your list that's been too sensitive, not the right time, that you want to write about before that deadline, before that last deadline? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. But in my column, um, sensitivity is not a limiting factor. I'll write about sensitive issues. I've read many, and I agree. I just didn't know if there's – sometimes – You mean you haven't read them all? Uh, <laughs> I was going to say how young I am, but no, I've not read them all. Oh, well – because you I will go like, back. You don't like to read me? No, I do like to read you. Very uh, much so. Oh, okay. I, I'm a fan of the entire magazine, the IBJ okay. portfolio. Right. Um, right. And But you're right. It seems like you will write about a lot of things. That's Book right. banning and Vice President Pence and just things that I think are such interesting topics. But sometimes I think they're interesting topics, but our community isn't ready for them. And so I didn't know if there's something I, that you I know. I write about things before the community is ready for them. Good for you. If it, if it I think it should be written about. I mean... You know, I own the damn paper. <laughs> but the funny thing about it is I wrote a column last uh, month. It was an April, April Fool's send-up, and um, the newsroom refused to print it. And let's, let's realize one thing very, very important. When I bought the paper many years ago, 30-some years ago, I said, okay, the newsroom is off limits for me. 
I'm not going to influence anything you write about. So when they said, we're not going to print this. It's too raunchy. Then I said, okay, you're the newsroom. I told you it'd be hands off. And we've had those discussions before. And they have, and they all know. They have um, full authority to print or not print. And it's unencumbered by anything I can do or say. So in a, in a sense, I was pretty happy with their independent judgment. But being an author of a column that I thought was pretty funny, um, they, uh, they reject it. I know what Robert's going to ask you. He's going to ask what was too raunchy. Well, That's I, usually where he goes next. <laughs> well, Robert, I would, uh, this, this column, which just came out, uh, a couple of days ago. And you offered for people if they want to read it. I said, if you want to read this raunchy column, send me an email and I'll send it to you. Right. I, I, grew, I grew up on the east side, so your definition of raunchy and mine may not be the same. Well, I was swamped. Everybody, if you tell somebody, <laughs> it's like being banned in Boston. Okay, <laughs> That's the most popular play in, the, in America. If it's banned in Boston, everybody wants to go. So I had a banned in Boston column and um, my emails just blew up. My assistant's back there spending the rest of the day sending columns to people who want to want to see this dirty <laughs> column. So, um, yeah, so we're do, we're fulfilling all those requests. You are listening to Leaders and Legends. It's presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler with Grandview Lending. We're sitting down with Mickey Maurer, a businessman, philanthropist, entrepreneur, we're coming up in 2019 on the 20th anniversary of you climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Why? And what are some of your memories of that? I was there in Africa uh, with my wife and a big group of people on one of those Indianapolis Zoo-sponsored tours. And I was we were in a, a major city there in Kenya called Nairobi. And from Nairobi, you can look up and see the neighboring country, Tanzania, where Mount Kilimanjaro is. And it was majestic. It was on the equator, yet it was covered with snow. I mean, that's pretty almost impossible. And it wasn't part of a range. It was just one mountain sticking up there. It was a volcano. And I said to Janie, I said, I'm going to come back and climb that. Uh, I had heard it was a big challenge. The truth is, more people died on Kilimanjaro than any mountain in the world, including Mount Everest. And the um, success rate is around 50%. And this is from people who think they can do it, who are in shape. And so um, I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. I'll do that. And I'll uh, see if I can get my, our own group so that um, we can all have fun together rather than just sign on with a bunch of strangers. So we put together a group of local guys and um, not everybody I asked said yes. A lot of people said, are you nuts? But we did cabbage together 10 people. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time. We went in September, I think, and spent all summer working hard to get in shape and, 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 and did. And um, nine of us made it. One guy um, had mountain sickness, and it was pretty serious, and we had to get him off the mountain quickly. And um, that's how a lot of people die up there. Um, but nine of us made it, and we all got together and 
and, and we used to get together on a regular, maybe every couple of years, but, uh, and we told the group and who wants to go back? Nine of us said never. And the guy who didn't make it said, I'll, I'll go back. <laughs> but um did he make it he never went back no never went back never went back it's very t- it was very tough it's like my father used to say the army he was a world war ii soldier the army was the best thing that ever happened to me but i'll never do it again so that's kind of like we loved it we loved hanging out with one another and uh, it's like you know like the army going to war together being successful for the most part but nobody wanted to try it again Remember, we're older people. We're in our 50s at the time. We're not 20s. Sure, and I had read before that Kilimanjaro is, was the most dangerous. Why? Jagged peaks? No, no, not atmosphere. so much. No, not many people die falling off the mountain like you would. You might think. It's, uh, it's ultra-high altitude, so you can die easily from that. It's um, tough. So you, you think you're in shape, but you have to really be in superior shape. And so it's, you can die from that um it's uh very cold it can be uh very very cold in the at night um you can't drink the water um so i mean there's it throws a lot of challenges at you and so yeah if you're vulnerable to any of that then you could easily die some people fall but uh, that's not where a death claims most of the people on kilimanjaro Talk to us a little bit about, as we wind down here in a few minutes, your love of crossword puzzles. I was at law school. I remember vividly what happened. There's a saying in law school that the first year they scare you to death, the second year they work you to death, and the third year they bore you to death. So I was in the third <laughs> year, and I was sitting there bored to death. And a guy in my class, I looked over, and he was working a crossword puzzle. I said, wow, he's got something to do. You know, I'm just tired of this professor. And incidentally, when I came back to lecture, I looked out and there was a guy working a crossword puzzle. So it served me right. (laughs) Anyway, I went out and got a crossword puzzle for the next lecture from the Louisville Courier Journal. And I was happy as a clam sitting there half listening and half doing a crossword puzzle. And I got hooked. Um, A lot of fun. And so one day I worked up what I thought was a particularly bad crossword puzzle. And I said, gee, I can do better than that. So I went about making a crossword puzzle. And I sent it into the New York Times. And it was promptly rejected. And I, um, I said, well, hey, that was a pretty good puzzle I wrote back. What's wrong with it? He said, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but this puzzle contains a plethora of esoterica. And I didn't know what either word meant. I had to look them both up. And uh, <laughs> then from there, I redoubled efforts and through a lot of crazy things, uh, started publishing. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. Why would my good friend and fellow East Sider, Ton Parent, who used to work at the IBJ, specifically mention to me years ago, by the way, your love of Boggle. She told me, stay away from him. <laughs> if he gets out the boggle, don't do it. We at the IBJ, by the way, um, I love Ton Parent. She's a terrific lady, a wonderful, wonderful woman, mm-hmm. and bright as can be, and a pleasure to work with. 
she was a great gal. I'm sure she still is. So I don't see her too she's much. She's terrific. I just saw her on election day. She's working at IPS. She's doing wonderful things. Terrific, yeah, well. terrific husband and their uh, son who beat cancer as a kid. That's right. Went to University of Alabama. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the world of Ton Parent. We, um, at the IBJ, I forgot what day, I think on a, after we got the paper out, maybe a Thursday. Paper goes out on Thursday at the time. Now it's out a little day earlier. We'd all sit around our conference room and bring in something to eat, and everybody's relaxed because the paper's gone. Deadline doesn't start till the next day. And we'd play Boggle. And Ton was a pretty good Boggle player. Um, well, she's extraordinarily bright. Yeah, but I was better. So she's <laughs> right about that. I'm not better at everything, but I was better than she was at Boggle. So she has. Well, you must have scarred her because she's mentioned yeah. it to me more than once. Yeah, well, um, Boggle, crossword puzzles, words. Um, it's If you practice at those things, you get better. So um, we had a great time together, and that's where she got that. And when Will Shorts, who's the New York Times crossword puzzle editor, comes to town, He's from Crawfordsville originally. Um, we'll sit down in, with a group and play Boggle. And um, so it's Boggle at a fairly high level. She's right. We always end the Leaders and Legends podcast with the same five questions. But before we do so, since we have Danielle here today, Danielle, do you have one last question you want to ask Mickey? Yeah, absolutely. So um, part of our audience for this for being on Leaders and Legends is for our girls, our our you know, 29,000 Girl Scouts in central Indiana, we hope, or certainly their parents, troop leaders. So I'm wondering, Girl Scouts is about building girls of courage, confidence, character, who make the world a better place, for which as I listen to your answers today, I think you have all of those. Thank you. Um, what would your advice be, um, particularly to a young girl who's, you know, just, you know, young girl for the, for her future? What What's most important to be successful, do you think? I don't think that that answer is any different than what I would tell a young boy yeah, or tell absolutely. a young girl. Yeah. Uh, I would, so to be specific about from a woman's point of view, from my world, is that if you are an entrepreneur, nobody cares whether you're a boy or a girl. There's no glass ceiling. Um, people want to get the best product at their best price and they want to get the best service. And if you've got a business that does that, then there's no limit to what you can do. Um, but not, but entrepreneurism isn't for every girl or every boy, but that's just kind of a small little piece of advice. If, hey, if you're complaining to me about you don't, you, 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 where you can't get ahead in corporate America, there's another thing you can do. That's being an entrepreneur. And nobody cares whether you're a boy or a girl there. You either got the goods or you don't. On the other hand, if you want to make it in a big um, bureaucracy, you might sell, uh, you might ask what the track record is so far. So let's say you want to work at a bank, have some knowledge about a bank. Um, go to that bank and figure out, look at the organization chart and how many women are, are running divisions of that bank today? How many women are on the board of directors of that bank? Uh, how, how many women are satisfied with their employment situation at that bank? The track record will tell you a lot about what's going on in that corporation. And it's a lot easier to make it in a corporation that already understands this. So I would do some research, not just what they're going to pay me, not just what the job's about, but what is the company about? I would do that. So I, I probably monopolized too much of time on that one question, but those are a couple of ideas. That's a really great one, actually. Before we get to the five questions today with Mickey Maurer, I want to remind the audience that we have a new sponsor, 
That's Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. You're going to hear more from Aaron in subsequent podcasts. Thank you very much, Aaron, for sponsoring us along with the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Uh, Mr. Maurer, the first question of the five questions is, what was your first job? My first job was in elementary school, and there was a amusement center called Little America. Now, if you haven't lived here your whole life or you're younger than, say, 65, you've never heard of Little America. It's an amusement center. It was right on the on uh, right by Glendale, okay, right. across the street from Glendale on the on the west side of the street and on the south side of that corner was Little America. And in elementary school, um, I was privileged uh, after school uh, uh, and on the weekends to lead the little ponies around the bridle path with little teeny little kids on them. And I would lead the pony around the circle and then I'd get to the end and some bigger person would lift that person, the little kid off the, the pony. And so, and they pay me, I forgot how many cents an hour, but not very much. <laughs> so I was leading that pony and the pony in front of me stopped and pooped on my shoe. I'm leading the one behind. And I said to myself, you know, I think there's going to be a better job out there for me. And so whenever I think about how tough and entrepreneurism can be tough, you get turned down a lot. I think about, isn't it? Better than being pooped on by a pony? And so I said, yeah. And that was my first job. <laughs> As an entrepreneur, veteran business, I completely understand. Do not have the other experience. Have you ever been pooped on by a pony? No, but I have okay. children. All right. Do children count? Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> what was your first concert? Um, when I was... Uh, I don't remember going to concerts in high school like all the kids do now. Sure. Um, although I did go to the state fair. And that probably qualifies as my first concert. Concert. So in the state fair in the 50s, um, you would be treated by Pat Boone. <laughs> Ever heard of Pat Boone? Yes. Okay, so he would sing and you'd go to his concert as part of the state fair and get a date. Um uh, and then your mom and dad would pick you up and drop you off because I couldn't drive at the time, 14 or 15. And I remember Pat Boone did it two years in a row. He did a cover of Van Halen's Panama, actually. Well, he was in a phase where he was way over his head and never should have gone <laughs> that direction. But his ballads in the old days. And, sure. And you wanted your date to swoon a little bit. So that was... Swoon over him or you? No, anybody. It's fine. <laughs> If you could recommend one book to anyone, I know that's difficult, but if you could recommend one book for anyone to read, which book would you choose? Well, everybody chooses To Kill a Mockingbird, and I don't. I would not choose that. So I can tell you which one I didn't want to choose, although that was a good book. Um, and then the other people all choose the Bible. I wouldn't choose that. So um, I don't know that we've heard To Kill a Mockingbird. We have had the Bible a few times, but yeah, yeah your point's well taken. Yeah, so... Um, I read, um, about two-thirds of my reading is nonfiction, and one-third is, is fiction. So if I recommended a, a, a book for the beach, it would be a great book of, of fiction. And um, 
I can't. Uh, I just read a great one about a, a guy that uh, comes to New York in the 1700s, and this podcast is going to have to wait or contact you for me to give you the title of that <laughs> that book. Uh, but it's it's got uh, uh, it's a beach book, and it's got a great setting there, and it it's got um, um, murder and mayhem and everything else. So great fiction. So um, I, I I liked that. The nonfiction, there is a um, a memoir of a lady, I think it's called West with the Night, extraordinarily uh, written book about a woman, Aviatrix, and her life. And uh, from a memoir point of view, it's the best memoir I ever I ever read. And that's called West with the, the Night, and that's a powerful book. Um, and um, I wrote, I read a great um, textbook. Uh, in school called Principles of Criminal Law, written by the most uh, most extraordinary uh, professor. And um, it was hard to get through. Nobody could make it. The guy, I wrote the exam of my life. And when I got a B, um, this was before great inflation, I questioned, what the hell is going on here? I read your book. I understand it. Nobody else did. Uh, I loved your book. Um, he said, I didn't give any A's. Those are the olden days. (laughs) So from a textbook, from a memoir, from a fiction, um, those are some of my good books. If you could witness any event in history, as it happened, be there, which event would you choose? Historical events. um, There's there's some uh, wonderful, wonderful opportunities to view history. And um, I I would would say... uh, English history would be a favorite of mine, and there's so much controversial, controversial things going on there. And do you want to discover the fate of the princes in the tower? Yeah, perhaps that's it. But um, that'd be that'd be the direction I'd look. Finally, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, living right now, two hours, talk about anything you want. Whom would you choose? My, we had that uh, discussion a couple nights ago, and my four-year-old, they face it a little different. And um, if you could have a conversation with anybody uh, living or dead, you could choose whomever you want. And my four-year-old said, I'd choose somebody living. <laughs> but, but kids see things so in such a simple way. So do you mean somebody that's living today? Correct. Alive right now. I'm looking forward to a conversation I'm going to have pretty soon with Mayor Pete. Uh, so refreshing and, um, um, and so bright and um, big future, big challenges ahead. Um, I'm going to get a chance to have a conversation with him because I'm going to make that happen. And that's the guy I look forward to having a conversation with today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert at veteranstrategies.com.